0: It's Good Friday. After hours of agony hanging on the cross, Jesus gives up his spirit. He bows his head. Three years of extraordinary ministry have ended in apparent failure and in death. What is to become of his scarred and blooded body? The scriptures recount how Joseph of Arimathea asks Pontius Pilate for permission to take away the crucified Jesus. He's accompanied by Nicodemus, who helps him to bind the body in linen cloths after embalming Jesus with myrrh and other spices. My name's Mark Dowd, and in the special Holy Week edition of Things Unseen, I want to examine contemporary attitudes to the bodies of our deceased family members and friends. Why is it that so many of us are squeamish about seeing and touching people we've loved after they've died? To begin my journey of inquiry, I've come to Lindfield and to a funeral director's not too far from the Sussex
1: Downs. My name's Gary Mansfield. Um, I'm a, what they call funeral operative. I do all behind the scenes work. So I collect the deceased, uh, drive the hearse or the limousine. I make all the coffins up, clean the mortuary. Sometimes I make the tea as well. Yeah, sometimes make the tea, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Chris, I'm a funeral
0: administrator, so I help with all aspects. Chris and Gary have just collected a lady who
1: died at the local hospice.
0: Oh yeah, so this is the tray where we'll transfer to.
1: And then what we have to do also, we have to um, measure the deceased so we know what coffin size he or she will be. Uh, and also, we actually do put some cream which is on the lips and the eyes, because um, the eyes and lips can dehydrate once the person has died. So if they're being viewed, it keeps the eyes supple, soft, and the lips soft as well. Yeah. Uh, my name's Ian Masters. I'm a funeral director. Uh, my company is Masters and Son.
2: I'm Sue Masters. I'm a joint director with Ian.
1: When
0: people die... What's the reaction of of their family and loved ones? Do people want to view the bodies or do some people just prefer not to have any sighting of, of the deceased?
2: It really varies the relative after they've died. Sometimes, you know, where people don't look lovely, the person I'm thinking recently had rather bad, the face was very disfigured and I think that was the reason they didn't really want to come back and sort of face that again.
0: Do people ask for bodies to be embalmed?
1: If somebody's going to come to the chapel of rest, we will always speak to the family and suggest that we would carry out embalming to make the experience for them as, as good as it can be. But embalming can help with the presentation um, and ensure we don't have any issues or problems um, at a later date. And I
0: gather, Sue, occasionally people come along with photos and give it to you and say, I'd like, um, I'd like my family member to look like that, please.
2: Somebody once sent gave us a photo of this person sitting, was in an airplane, smiling with champagne glass and was really upset when they came and said we hadn't got her smiling. And, you know, it wasn't just upset, he, he rang several times after and it was as if we'd really failed. I mean, it, it is sad that people do have unrealistic expectations, to be honest, sometimes.
0: I wonder, deep down, if some of those impossible expectations stem from some of the big claims made about the resurrection of the body in Scripture. St. Paul tells us the perishable will become imperishable. That's quite a burden to place on hard-working funeral directors. So how should we approach the death of a loved one, and how much should we engage with their physical body? Canon Dr. Sandra Miller is a priest and formerly worked as head of life events in the Church of England, which means she spoke to people about what happens at those big moments in life, when a child arrives, when a marriage begins, and when a life ends.
3: I would always encourage people not to be scared. You know, that there's nothing creepy about this at all. It's about what works for each individual family. So there are some families that are very, very comfortable with sitting alongside the dead, But for other people, there is a a kind of taboo about that or a sense that this is going to be something that they don't want to see. Fewer and fewer people just see someone die in the course, as it were, of their life. We've got less familiar with that as, you know, our culture has become more advanced in terms of what we can do medically, more interventions are needed and people get taken away from home.
0: In Western societies, approximately half of us will die in hospital. The Irish writer and broadcaster Kevin Toulis believes that this increasing distance from the physicality of death is having a negative effect on us. He's written a number of books on death and dying, including one called My Father's Wake. Kevin feels that death has been taken over by what he calls the Western death machine. That's the medical profession
4: and the modern funeral industry. We've ended up in a system in the UK and in the US in the grip of the Western death machine. And that is ultimately a complex of different institutions which basically abstract the dead, in particular, the dead body from the sight of the living. Most people in England uh, would never have seen a dead body in their life. If they do get sick, they go to hospital. And if you do die in hospital, Your body will be sort of whisked off to the undertaker, the mortuary. And it'll be very difficult for a family to abstract the body of their loved one from those institutions. All of this does is it basically denigrates and denudes a very ancient human belief, which is a belief in the right of burial, that you have an obligation to the dead and the dying to bury them properly. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that here's a religion,
0: Christianity, which says that God took on flesh and became incarnate and that the body is resurrected on the last day. And yet, certain parts of Western Europe and the US are culturally perhaps the most hesitant and squeamish about seeing and embracing the dead body of a partner, close relative or lifelong friend. Sandra Miller again.
3: The Christian tradition varies across cultures as well. So some of our black majority churches will have a different attitude as Christians towards the body in death than, than some of our white Church of England colleagues have towards it. Um, so, you know, it can be very different. But well, I think what worries me the most is not so much that we have a different attitude to the body, but more somehow culturally we've got to a point of thinking that in death a body doesn't matter. Whereas we spend millions of uh, pounds and millions of minutes looking after our bodies when they're alive. So, you know, we buy our perfumes and our unguents to look younger and better and keep ourselves fit and all of those good things. And then it's like people say, well, you know, when I'm dead, just throw me in the bin. I don't want to be a burden, I'm dead. But actually bodies really do matter in death as well. And um, caring for the body can be just a part of the whole saying goodbye to someone, you know.
0: The importance of caring for the flesh of the dead as part of our farewell to them, explains why we have burial rites, which date back to our oldest ancestors. For the ancients, Kevin Toulis explains, the wake was a kind of threshold, a
4: liminal space between the world of the dead and the world of the living. I think the wake is this liminal rite, is this belief that the spirit of the dead leaves from the natural world into the supernatural world. But at the same time, as this portal opens then the fear is that the supernatural world will reinvade into the natural world, that chaos will come again. So there is that sense, I think, in a wake that you're there in the night, watching over this dead body, going through this solar cycle, making sure that the spirit of the dead can safely depart into the afterlife. But also you're there guarding the fact that the afterlife is not going to come back into actual the natural world, and you know, put a hex on you, call up all manner of um, you know terrible events because you haven't, you know, done the proper rites.
2: So once we've dressed this lady, we will put her in her coffin and put her into the chapel of rest. Right. Okay. Okay. So
5: I'm Tracy, and um, I'm a funeral director here. So we just popped to the top over the lady's head um, and in order to do that we have to pull her arms in the air um, just gives us a bit of flexibility and a
2: bit of movement so that we can we can do that and now trousers I remember I dressed my mother in trousers and I got the first pair on and there was a mark on it I thought I oh, should be cross so I took them off and put another pair on so I thought oh, yes I was sort of talking to her saying sorry I've got to do it again <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was. I think doing this practical side of it, I, even if it was a young child or one of those desperately sad situations, we've never f- cried no. when we're doing this practical work. It, there's something I, I was thinking. It was quite a strange thing, really. Even though we were actually there with the body, even when it was my my mother, I didn't cry when I was doing this practical work for her you know this dressing it, it was really quite a really helpful experience actually
3: right shall we just pull these up i
2: yeah, just sorry, again yeah,
3: that's it. That's it. i think that image of mary cradling jesus in death is the pieta It's a really powerful image and i remember when my own mother died uh, she died suddenly and i got to the hospital she was already dead but i do remember sitting alongside her holding her hand but i remember thinking about her body, the body that bore me and the body that was now dead and what it meant. Her physicality was important to me in that moment, just being with it. So I think it's important that we don't get into a sense of just thinking that once we're not fit and running about and active, we're of no account because actually there is something really important about our flesh as we die as well.
0: Sandra Miller. That is certainly what Kevin Toolis found when he travelled to Du Canella on the far west coast of County Mayo in Ireland, to be with his father, Sonny, in the final hours of his life. Soon Kevin found himself in the midst of an Irish wake, a ritual with ancient pagan and Celtic roots, which has been subsequently embellished by centuries of Catholic
4: culture and practice. My father had lapsed into a coma. He was in a very small room, a room in which my mother had actually given birth to one of my brothers in our old family house, in this townland where my family have lived for 250 years. My father, Sonny, was on a bed, incredibly emaciated. The cancer, pancreatic cancer, had essentially eaten all of the muscle. It was really just a kind of living skeleton. But also in the room, there were 10 people, um, some of whom were strangers to me. And I kind of wondered what, you know what they were doing here, participating in the sharing of this moment of death, of this man who happened to be my father. Uh, and so it was actually a really awkward moment because I was struggling too with the Western death machine, which says we, these things are, have to be private and shaded and curtained and we can't really talk about them. And that we don't touch bodies. And we don't touch bodies and we don't have, you know, this is almost shameful. Like We pull the curtain across, we start whispering. You would never dream of visiting the dying
1: So we're just going to my workshop now where I'll make all the coffins up. It's actually um, where we store the coffins as well. So the person I'm going to be making a coffin for now is um, this person. I won't say the name, but this is this person here. So this is my information board. So you've got the name of the deceased and then date of the funeral, if it's going to be a cremation or burial, so I know whether to use metal handles for burial, plastic handles for cremation. And then the style of coffin. In this case, I'll be using what we call Canterbury coffin. Okay, so it's got um, an oak effect um, surround to it. So it looks like the wood off of a tree, basically. But it's just um, what they call foil wrap.
4: But these 10 people in the room... And they were led, really, by my aunt, who in that particular role is, is called an Irish, in Irish, Mban Kinsha, a, a, the chief keener. And what they have done is really... they've C- Catholic- Keening is wailing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, but what It's they, letting all the grief out. And yeah. what you have done is they would assumed this ancient pagan rite of keening into the Catholic Church, into the rosary. So we were looking at this, this father, my father, in the stillness of this room, and then she began to, you know, say... Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou and blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And then the chorus, the nine other people in the room, then began obviously to, to say the second verse as a chorus together, which is Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for our sinners now and at the hour of our death. But this room was so small that the sound of these booming voices grew louder and louder and louder until it was the loudest sound I ever heard in my life. And I realized that what these people were doing is they were attempting to cradle this man into death. To engage with a body in death,
0: to utilize one's sense of sight and touch, or not. To be one of the disciples that fled the passion and death of Jesus, choosing not to see, or to be Mary, his mother, standing at the foot of the cross, not averting her gaze from the stark reality of what was unfolding in front of her eyes, but accompanying him to the end. To let him know she was very much there. Precisely who should be there at the moment of death? A time-honoured question, says Sandra Miller, that throws up some interesting historical perspectives.
3: In the past, and I'm talking the long past here, for many people it would have been the midwife who was there dealing with a dead body. A midwife would have been called in to be alongside the body to lay out the dead body. The women in the family might have washed the body, put the coins on the eyes, done all those things. These are women who were familiar with the physicality of both birth and death. And I always find it quite interesting that we use the word labour for bringing into life and we also often use the word labour to describe people's breathing when they get near the end. You're labouring for breath at the beginning of life. You labour for breath at the end of life.
4: And they repeated the rosary again and again and again. Um, and at the end of it, um, actually my father didn't die. <laughs> he took uh, another 24 hours. I remember in the, in the same day and in the afternoon, um, a very healthy friar tuck-like Catholic priest arrived, uh, let's see, quite kind of full-fleshed, and looked at my father as a farmer might look at a kind of cow in labour and looked at him and said, oh, he's got a few more hours left in him yet. <laughs> and <laughs> I was completely outraged and wanted to punch him. But it turned out to be right. And there was also sort of casualness um, in just this intimacy with death. There was nothing particularly special.
1: So I'm just stapling... Now, we have to put in a a waterproof lining um, because, unfortunately, the body can leak fluid. Um, So we have to put in a liner because otherwise, because it's only wood, it's chipboard, if the person was leaking, um, then it could go through to the wood and you don't want that because when you put it onto your shoulder, it would just be soggy. (laughs)
4: The death vigil had gone on and, you know, you can't be up 24 hours 7. So I missed my moment of my father's death. He died on the the following night about 3 a.m. But I was up about 5 a.m. in the morning, uh, came back to the house because there were so many of us. We'd all gathered from all parts of the world. This was a house that was full of people. My nine-year-old nephew, Sean, uh, was still a boy at the time and he would um, sort of run around in the wake room in the sitting room and as he would sort of pass the coffin he'd often stick his fingers in Sonny's hair and sort of ruffle his hair and then sort of run on through there were younger children there they were playing we're pl- playing with their toys so suddenly, at, at the base of the coffin at, yeah yeah, your, your father's grandchildren again we were sort of shocked uh, you know, how can this be so public
1: So that's the first handle done already, so it's quite quick. Um, basically, the plastic handles are um, for cremation only, not for burial. Because sometimes you can get what we call family bearers, so they don't always want the company to carry the deceased wherever. But we always advise them not to use the handles, because they are plastic. Uh, some, obviously, you get different sizes with people. Some people are very light, some people are very heavy. So we always just say they're just there for decoration.
4: There's an Irish word called mehel, which is a way of exchanging labour without money, where you'd come together to one farmer to take in the harvest on one day. Carrying the coffin and digging the grave, you might call a kind of transcendental mehel, where as I carry the coffin of my brother today or sister this community will carry my coffin in time to come. And so it's a linking in, it's all these interrelated relationships between the living and the dead. It's
0: only when a deep thinker like Kevin Tullis puts it that way that a simple practical task, carrying a wooden box with a body in it, suddenly takes on a whole new meaning. And this ongoing relationship between the living and the dead is something that Sue and Tracy have also encountered in their Sussex funeral home.
2: We do have families that do come in and want to dress the body. Some people like them dressed in their gardening clothes, something they're used to seeing them in, and others then bring out a suit that they haven't worn for 20 years, which, you know, doesn't take into account maybe that they've grown in size or the opposite, so...
5: And also we've had children that have come in. Um, We had a child, her mother died and she was only young, her mother was only in her early 40s, Um, And the daughter was 13, I think, at the time. And she very much wanted to be part of that, so she came in and helped me do the makeup and everything. So this lady was poorly for a long time. I went and visited her in the hospice a couple of times and we discussed with the whole family present what her wishes were. So nothing was hidden. Everything was treated as being very normal. So for the daughter, she felt she'd done something for her mother at the very end. And, yeah, was, was very pleased that she'd done it.
4: What was interesting about this is that we never sort of called out for help. We never said, oh, um, the authorities, what should we do now? Or how should we do this? You know, a doctor did come in to give the death certificate. But Sonny died in the house that he'd helped build as a child. He Died in one bedroom. He got washed and dressed in that bedroom. The undertaker came with a coffin. We put him into the coffin, we put him in the sitting room. And that was it. And then we had the wake. And we didn't... As I say, it was so different from England, where you say, what do I do now? I mean, this community knew what to do because they'd been practising the Irish wake probably for about 6,000 years. The Irish wake,
0: a quite literally hands-on approach to embracing the physical reality of death. But many recoil from such tactile engagement. And when a family does not wish to be involved in their relative's death, then funeral directors like Sue and Tracy ready to step in.
5: Yes, yes. I mean, you have both ends of the scale. Some families just don't want to know anything or be involved at all. Um, And that's fine. That's fine. Everybody's different and every funeral is different and every family is different. So, you know, we will do whatever
2: suits that family best.
0: Do people want locks of hair?
2: Yes, quite often they want locks of hair or they use the locks of hair to make the Jewelry. They can make diamonds from the locks of hair. So there's a lot of trying at the time. There seems to be trying to hang on to something small that you can then do something in the future with.
0: Locks of hair, jewellery. We sometimes go to understandable lengths to keep the memory of the departed alive. For others, it's a deeply held conviction that there is some meaning in the words life after death. What this actually amounts to can vary greatly. A number of people these days hold on to the view that those they have lost continue to accompany them in the form of angels. Sandra Miller.
3: I think people draw a lot of hope from the idea of some way of thinking that the person they have cared about is still around. Many of us will have been in churches, often in the middle of winter, and uh, the classic is a butterfly appears. And people go, oh, you know she's with us it's a sign she's well whereas actually what we we really know is the butterfly was sleeping and the heating's been turned on and the butterfly's woken up robins are another one feathers all sorts of things angels is a fairly recent one scripturally angels are different from human beings christians don't believe that people become angels so i always think the interesting question to ask someone who says you know i I think granddad's a star or an angel or whatever is tell me why that's important to you Why are you thinking that? Because then I can begin to hear what it is that's happening, what their questions are, what their yearning is, what their grief might be, rather than saying, oh, no, that's a weird idea, we don't believe it. But just why is that important right now that you have that hope?
5: I have a friend who, her husband died, he was only young, and she carries a small amount of his ashes in her handbag everywhere. Um, But the rest she has when she takes them to bed every night. So, yeah, everybody's different.
3: I was an associate chaplain on a special care baby unit and uh, I've been able to be alongside people in that terrible moment when a baby is born without life, without taking a breath. And I've sat with families and one of the most precious memories I have is of holding someone's child and being able to somehow embrace them and as I held them, reflecting the fact that God's love is holding them as well. And that holding of things is such a gesture of love for most of us and comfort that being able to do that, to hold someone in death, as I go back to the, the image of the Pieter, Mary holding Jesus, is such a gesture of, of our great love and behind that, God's great love.
0: In the West, those who profess the deepest Christian convictions are certainly fewer in number than, say, 50 years ago. But for those who do believe, there is no greater hope of being held in God's love, than the empty tomb. The bold claim at the heart of the Easter story that death is not the final word, that there will be an end to suffering. It is a window, a portal, through which we must pass to savour the promise of timeless eternity. Central to that state is the Christian belief in the resurrection of the body. Whatever this means, it is, as one former bishop put it, a lot more than a conjuring trick with bones. Think of it. When the risen Jesus meets Mary in the garden, she does not recognize him. Neither do the disciples on the road to Emmaus, but they somehow feel his presence when either their names are spoken or bread is broken. To be resurrected, then, is not to simply reappear in the former earthly state. It means a total transformation and making anew. In this state, if we enter beyond time into eternity, is it any surprise that Jesus is not instantly recognized? Yes, he is there in bodily form, yet somehow different. Is it any wonder that the Church refers to the miracle of Easter as a mystery? rather like catching occasional glimpses of sunlight on the surface water of an endlessly deep well. My name is Mark Dowd, and you've been listening to Things Unseen from CTVC. We will leave the last words to Kevin Toulis, who recalls his father's standing up to the inevitability
4: of his own mortality. I think even for those who are you know, incredibly religious, um, there is obviously still the fear around death. And at, at moments, my father did feel fear. It's you know, perfectly human. And, but he never shied away, and neither did his community shy away from the imminence of his death. In a way, he sort of stood up on the shore, looking at the far horizon, seeing it coming, not running towards it, but waiting for it, like the tide, to sort of come in and engulf him. He was able to sort of stand there in acceptance. And that was a quite awe-inspiring act to witness.